The other night a full moon came up from the back of the property. Scudding fast and low over the tops of the eucalypts and perhaps clipping a few of the highest branches before returning to its ordinary orbit and situating itself in the middle of the sky. I was out the front, making jaffles in the coals of a hissing fire. Cheese and tomato. Watching carefully in case the moon went off course, got the wobbles, crashed into the forest or plonked down in my front yard with a crater-making crash. But she lifted off. And I went and read by torchlight, and in the morning she was gone. The forest was returned to the cockatoos, the skinks, the scarlet robins, the paddy melons. I squat in their midst, in a train carriage that was once upon a time dragged up here, and not without some trouble. And this is where I'll see out this winter and the current crisis. Darkness is already a, a large presence and I'm preparing to make peace with it. Now there are some tales about how the train carriage got here. Stories I've gleaned from a few sources, so they make for a not quite reliable history. Perhaps more myth than anything. For example, it's been said that a commune of lesbians brought the carriage by tractor from some northwest Tasmanian rail yard. I feel like that's a good place to start. And furthermore, I'm told that these women all changed their surnames to O-Wheel, as in, of the wheel of life. Their own spin, if you will, on the Buddhist concept, I suppose. Which I accept as another metaphor. Since ordinarily I'd be living out a, a fairly active life, travelling around Tassie and beyond. And this year I'm having to take on a different approach. This train stuck at its station, practising motionlessness. Yet the wagon of life moves me along on a cosmic circuit that rotates like a wheel, right? And I suppose at some point I'm going to wonder when I shall get off. Sometimes this all feels like a ride I once saw at a theme park as a kid. A machine called the Gravitron. You step into this circular room lined with rubber, I think, and it, it spins faster and faster and faster, and the centrifugal force pins you up against the wall. You can barely move until the operator decides to stop the ride, and then you collapse on the ground, throw up the hot dog you had for lunch, and go off to find another absurd way to spend your time and bother your stomach. So some believe we keep spinning around and round existence until we figure out how to press the button that makes it stop. This ride is not called the Gravitron, at least in any religion that I've found. But in Buddhism it's called Samsara. And when eventually we get spat out, we land in a place or non-place, because a sort of absorption into the universal spirit, you know? There's this story that once the Buddha sat under a fig tree for like a fortnight, as you do, 
And then he, he took off for a bit of a bushwalk. As he went, he muttered his mantra, many are the desires of men, many are the desires of men. He wandered along and got tired, I guess, sat down again, and someone found him sitting there and they asked nosily why he was plonked down in the forest like this. Was he depressed? Had he been rejected by a lover? Pushed away by his family and friends? Nah, the Buddha said. Actually, I've torn up the roots of grief. I have no thirst for life. These are some of the things I think about sitting here in this train carriage as the darkness closes in. Actually, I guess I've been thinking a little bit about death. Generally, I suppose most of us do our best not to have death cross our paths too much. In English language, we even have all sorts of little sayings to keep it at bay. My favourite of these is dropping off the perch as a euphemism for dying, which makes us all sound like we're little budgies when we bite the dust. There's another one which I've been trying to get my head around ever since Shakespeare first scribbled it in a script. To shuffle off this mortal coil. Right, eh? And then on top of it all we have my favourite superhero, the Grim Reaper. Wandering around scarily or hard to take seriously, you decide. It's like we're doing what we can to cloud the essence of death with pithy sayings and cartoon characters. Yet the reality is that when we face it, we don't know very much about it at all. And now death is around a lot of us. All of a sudden. Prematurely. Unexpectedly. Unbidden and in some places in pretty large quantities. I've stopped looking at the media's tallies of the sick and the dead because it's seeming too much like a sports leaderboard. As if this is the international competition we're going to follow now because the Olympics are being cancelled. But it shouldn't stay far from my mind that the reason we're pursuing distance and isolation, the cause for my cancelled gigs and lost work, is to try and reduce the amount of people who die in this pandemic. It's not actually so I can read all the books I've been gathering over the years. It's kind of to save lives. Now, having spent a fair bit of time thinking about Tasmanian ecosystems, I'm able to see death as something necessary, something needed into the rhythm of life. Every critter, from the most infinitesimal bloody insect to the biggest farm animal, from butterflies and moths with fleeting lives, even to the most ancient of conifers, nothing's immortal. Some of us will be swatted, Many will be eaten. A few will do something spectacular like shag ourselves to death and 
Here I'm talking about the Australian native root rat, or antichinus. And most of us will just wither away, I guess. Our body's functions no longer able to do what's needed to keep us kicking on. But every living thing has its expiry date. That's a fact. Now every morning I step outside and terrorise about 30 paddy melons merely with my presence. A paddy melon isn't a fruit, by the way, for those who don't have little hoppers like these in their front yard or their part of the world. They're shadowy marsupials, like miniature kangaroos with a darker and more serious face. Anyway, they scatter in skittish fear, burrowing into the bush, often crashing through tough shrubbery in a desperate effort to get away from me. From me, of all fellow creatures. I'm not going to bloody hurt them. But fear is such a big part of their life. It's instinctive and intrinsic. You see their ears swivel anxiously when you wander anywhere near them, and then off they bolt, heart racing, adrenaline in a fur coat. A few minutes later, you'll see them chewing lazily on grass again as if nothing happened, but for that moment, for that moment, you get the sense that their eyes are wide open and they're facing death. Hanging up on a nail in the train carriage here, I have a paddy melon skull. Actually, someone else put it there, a past resident of the train who I guess wanted some sort of gothic decoration, but I've left it in place. Perhaps a little bit because it's a reminder that all bodies are subject to entropy. Even these enthusiastic fur bursts in the bush will eventually lose their ability to bound exuberantly out of my way. And though I'm not yet an old man, although I might sound like it sometimes, I've got to keep this near to the front of my mind as well, that someday my luck's going to run out. My body's going to break down. I'll lose the hopes and dreams that fizzle as miraculous chemicals in my brain. My friends, I'm going to die. Sometimes I wander through cemeteries. They're often an entry point to elements of a story from the past, even though you get very little from them. A name, some dates and a, a brief saying. As if a life converts at some inevitable point into marble or stone and reduces down to bare details. Even still, they can tell you something. I remember years ago ambling through the cemetery near where I lived in Launceston, looking down on a headstone bearing a long surname, a fuzz of Ys and Zs. It was a man born in Ukraine in wartime who'd migrated to Tasmania of all places and made a life for himself here. So it was like a time capsule, telling of a body that enacted an epic journey, a narrative that had now run its course and had been condensed into carved words on a block of rock. But a narrative nevertheless. I travelled in Iceland a while back on a research project that was ultimately about the way we record our memories. I walked through a lot of towns and subsequently spent ages in cemeteries, scribbling names and dates in notebooks for reference later on. And in a country churchyard near the north coast, I found a grave that had recently been fixed up, a slick black plaque on an abstract metal frame, and the name of the deceased was Ausdis, 
daughter of August. And by coincidence, I realised that she had died on that exact date at a farm just down the road, only 85 years earlier. Alstis had lived less than five months. And the headstones repeated a stock standard phrase. Blessed say meaning thiv. Or something like that. <laughs> Which I think means, blessed be the remembrance of you. I suppose now is a good time to apologise to any Icelandic listeners out there. But anyway, it's a sentence that summed up a long human tradition. That those who survive must remember. I wonder how well most of us shoulder that burden these days. And it is a weight to carry. The word grief is related to the word grave. But not actually grave as in that place you plonk a corpse. Grave as in heaviness or seriousness. As in I have some grave news for you. And as it turns out, it's related to gravity as well. And thus, I guess, to Gravitron too. But I'm sure you worked that out already. I had this beautiful evening travelling across southern Germany. The farmlands like an uneven sheet onto which was projected a pattern made of changing light and dark green shadows. Dusk had simplified the texture of the land. And then the hills went on undulating themselves into darkness. I was hitching into Swabia, where a family I knew was supposed to come and meet me. I hadn't heard from them for a couple of days, and when I finally got hold of them halfway across the country, I learned that a tragedy had occurred in their village, and their son's best mate had died in a motorbike accident. In the morning, apple blossoms shone. Canola fields stretched out yellower than egg yolks and a lad named Finn was gone. Chapels with carvings of Christ in supple timber rose on hilltops and I walked with no destination, following alleyways and forest paths and bike trails as if each route was a numerical figure and I was putting together a sum and thus the answer of where I was going would resolve itself a conclusion would be made that could not be wrong. On my final night in the village, I was summoned to the house of the parents whose boy had died. Their home was full of photos of Finn, alongside all the flowers and condolence cards from the funeral. Finn's father announced that he was going to make a proposal. He'd heard I'd be continuing my travels on another continent, and since their son didn't get the chance, 
I was given a laminated photograph and asked to pose with Finn in various places. Nowhere in particular, just wherever I went. And when I got back to Australia, I was to bury a memory card which I was given and which presumably had pictures of him on it too. I was to bury it in the soil of my country. I did what I was asked. And somewhere in the dark soil of some backyard, I lowered a memory card ceremoniously, which will never break down. Unlike that body grown only to adolescence, of that stranger now in a Swabian graveyard, the substance of our memory of those around us is somewhere in between. Most of it disintegrates extremely quickly. But the essential element is as incorruptible, undegradable as plastic. Finn's mum had gotten out a bilingual dictionary and said, this would be a great consolation to us. But to carry us over waves of grief, we may need to find a whole bunch of different techniques. There was an old piano that got dumped in my living room. It was a housemate's inheritance from some remote ancestor who'd vanished in the Amazon or something. It wasn't quite in tune, and I couldn't actually play it, but I would caress those little keys and lose myself, overwhelmed in a layered labyrinth of sound. And after a while, there was this certain sequence that I would play over and over again like a prayer. Whispering, murmuring, whimpering words that I conjured up from somewhere. Poetry that was drawn from the deep and unsearchable source of chords and notes. It was pretty childish, but it passed the time. And maybe it did my troubled adolescent spirit a world of good. One summer afternoon, after the piano had been dropped into my life from this great height, I met an equally young woman down at the swimming hole, a traveller from one of those wonderful inland, mainland towns, Roma or Burke or Bendigo or somewhere, Western Australia maybe. She wore a loose pretty dress and smirked a lot and arched her eyebrows. I found her in the spot I used to colonise on the hot days and it turned out that we were reading the same book, Thank You Herman Hesse. She was travelling alone and said mostly she had come to climb trees but what else could I show her? Is there anything else to see? I live not very far away, so I invited her up for a cuppa, and she gave herself a tour while the billy boiled, looking around my share house as if she owned it. 
well, the house was precariously placed, precariously built and precariously filled with countless housemates who came and went but mostly abandoned the place in the summer so I had it all to myself and thus had turned it into a personal exhibition space. Yet she investigated every corner of the quarter-acre block and saw things that even I hadn't noticed before. A certain pattern swirling in the coloured glass of the front door. A flower squeezing through a crack in the pavement in that pathway we never used on the shadowed side of the house. A boy's face in the neighbour's window. Her name was Maya, which made me grin. Because it's the Sanskrit word for illusion. In the living room, she leaned on the piano and told me to play. I tried to explain that I didn't know how to ride a piano. I wasn't sure what I was doing with this behemoth of an instrument that had been so inexplicably set down in the corner of the living room. But nevertheless, she demanded music. So I sat down and performed my little mantra and went melting into the melody. And truth be told, the rain slipped and the piano galloped off and I felt as though I could pluck stars from the galaxy around me. And Maya's eyes were closed as if she was imagining another realm as well. Perhaps she was in the night sky above the Amazon. After all, worlds could meld in the sound that hovered over the piano's frame. I can't say how long this lasted. But at some point I let my hands go limp and the last notes reverberated away, dissipating out the window and down the street. Her eyes were still shut, their lashes reaching towards her rosy cheeks. We stayed like this for a good while. But I hadn't yet learned to keep my silence. So I said something that I meant as an invitation, but it came out in reverse. Are you going to go home tonight? She threw her head back and laughed. Of course I will leave you, she said. Now shove over. And she bumped me with her hip and we shared the stool a while. Tentatively, she ran her fingers up and down the panel of keys, slotting into a scale with some expertise, tinkering with various notes, settling on a sequence of chords and finally filling the space with glorious racket. Now it was my turn to close my eyes and fall into a dream. I saw a street lacquered with gold, tropical birds swooping between branches, clusters of fruit, clouds rippling in the distance. She had started singing, a warbling song with lyrics she was improvising on the spot, the words mingling with the music as in a radiant fog. The notes sharp and round, short and long, limestone peaks over a grassy valley. Everything, sound and word, blurred. And me with my eyes still closed but the insides of my eyelids technicolored. 
the way I remember it. When I opened my eyes, when I emerged from that cloud of sound, she was no longer there. It seems to me that much of life is dream, even once you've woken up. Most of it's like this, like Maya, a mist. There are nights and days, whole years from which nothing tangible gets left behind, just memory, which is a residue like ash. When you try to pick it up, it falls apart in your hands. But sometimes the dream firms up, gas solidifies. These stories take shape like roots in the soil. They intermingle like a mad puzzle. And sometimes, somehow, they seem to leave an impression on the earth. It's obviously good to have some level of detachment. Letting go of desire isn't a terrible quality either. And I'm really not trying to offer a class on comparative religion and appraisal of the Buddha's teachings. I'm just suggesting that for me, in this state of isolation and distancing, holding on to some things has some value. Not cutting myself completely adrift. Even as I decide not to read the news so much, even if I might go a couple of days without seeing anyone, I'm choosing to cultivate the tendrils that tether me to this colourful earth. Right now those roots seem to be the physical facts of my life. I hear the echo of these kookaburra's calls over the valley. I feel the southerly on my skin or a fire that warms up the train carriage. I watch the light change throughout the day, the way it affects the colour of eucalyptus leaves and draws shadows over the front yard until they swallow the forest whole. I pay attention to my heartbeat, my breath, my muscles, my belly, slowly savour the taste of stout or stir-fry. Probably the most dramatic near-death experience I've ever had is one that happened so quickly that I handled it calmly, with a sense of detachment perhaps. I was on my own hiking up a reasonably high pass in the Pyrenees, and summer had been late in coming there, so there was a heap of snow all the way up the pass. I'd found a good campsite at the base the previous night, and in the morning the snow was gorgeous and glittering and treacherously slippery and of course I had a set of old boots that I'd worn out in Tassie in the southern hemisphere summer and I didn't have any crampons of course or even any poles and I guess you can see where all this is going downhill fast 
I came a cropper and went sliding a good distance down towards this sheer face of rock under which there was a glacial river that was, of course, ready to spirit me off to the abyss. There just so happened to be a natural contour in the snow, near to the edge of the precipice. It had sort of shaped itself into a divert or a hollow bowl, and thankfully, just by chance, I landed in that. If I'd been going faster, I might have used it as a ramp and done a sick jump over the river anyway. Whatever the case, my, my progress towards doom was impeded and I picked myself back up and stomped back towards the pass. And a few days later, finished the hike. As I wandered down into the town, this other hiker caught up with me. So we did the last case together, yakking about the different routes we'd taken, sharing notes. And he was from Brittany. He was a, a funny, cynical sort of bloke. And at one stage, I told him about the slip and slide I'd had. And he grinned and said, Mmm, lots of people die like that. And of course I had to be the nonchalant Aussie bloke about it, so I put on my broadest accent and said, Yeah, I suppose I do, mate, but, you know, driving a car too, eh? And this bloke stopped in his tracks. And he said, Mais oui. I don't speak French, but I feel like most French sentences start like this. Mais oui. Near-death experiences are easy to find. It's the near-life experiences you have to work for. Later I sat alone at the local bar and ate the cheapo plat de jour and had a beer and remembered that when I was 16 years old I'd gotten off the bus at the top of my hill. It was a dark evening and I jumped onto my skateboard and was seized by a strong feeling. I began to hope that I would be hit by a car. Not to be killed or maimed or even really hurt. I mean, I think I was probably a bit depressed, but not too self-destructive yet. What I wanted was to come close to coming to grief so that I would then have the excuse the next day at school to do what I wanted to do and be who I wanted to be. I had this idea that if I nearly died, I could simply declare that I didn't give a shit what people thought of me. That I'd shed every ounce of self-consciousness and maybe snog that girl I had a crush on and ride off into the sunset, or what have you. Well, I skateboarded safely down the hill that night. And over time, I shrugged off most of that stuff anyway, without needing to be swiped by a truck or held at gunpoint, but the thought stayed with me. That a person might spend their whole life being something they'd rather not because they never quite had the right excuse to do it differently, because they couldn't justify a drastic change. Nowadays, I think near-death experiences have another effect on me. When I'm driving through the bush out here and one of the local dickheads is on the wrong side of the road, I think how much I would hate to be in a crash because my legs would be broken or I'd get concussion or I'd be shredded to bits. Or on a hike last year when I was chased by multiple packs of sheepdogs, I was very aware of my skin, my muscles, my vital organs. In other words, death makes me pay attention to the fact that I am a body. And likewise, when I think about certain illnesses that might be floating around at the moment, I'm reminded that I am entirely vincible, that my body is a porous and permeable thing 
such a fragile mechanism that it can be beaten by something invisible. It doesn't take a ton of steel moving at high speeds. It can be a microbe that comes unannounced and throws the tiniest but mightiest spanner in the works of what keeps us ticking. And yes, we teeter nearer to death than usually we suspect. We're on a wobbly old perch that's bound to buck us off soon enough. Or we're on a coil that is mortal or something. There are countless cosmographical metaphors. But if you believe what I believe, we're on the Gravitron. It hums, it vibrates, it rotates, it floats through space. For now we're locked in a rubber room with a pack of strangers under enormous pressure. We may as well make a few mates along the way. Who knows when the operator's going to press the button that makes our journey stop. And then we'll stagger off. And we'll need to throw up. Till then, we hold on.